Hello and welcome. This is the Science of Fiction, and today I am joined by Dr. Amy Milton. Hi. Hi, and uh, we're going to be talking about memory in movies this week. So, um, yeah, if you've got any questions, do send them in. It will be great to hear them. And uh, we're going to be discussing some of Amy's favourite movies, aren't we? Yes, yes, that's right. So I've got a set of lists of what's coming up, but I think I think we're going to start actually picking up something I know we're not going to be talking about today, which is um, you did for last year's science festival, uh, sort of movie film festival of memory in movies. Yes, that's right. And you started off with Finding Nemo. Uh, Finding Nemo was our second one, actually, but Finding Nemo is one of the best well it's the best children's film with an element of amnesia in it dory is an amnesic fish and the frustration that the other fishes have dealing with her um was actually commented by the uh, national epilepsy society for a good portrayal of the difficulties of dealing with amnesic people so that is actually so that's actually genuinely what it'd be like it's not just comedy it's not just comedy no it can be very frustrating dealing with um with amnesic patients but the way that you know Dory develops strategies for managing her memory loss is admirable, and so Finding Nemo is a good film for amnesia and great fun for all the family. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one thing you mentioned there was the Epilepsy Foundation. So does amnesia and epilepsy go together then? Um, well, quite often. So the the um, epilepsy itself will. When someone goes into a, a seizure, they'll have an amnesia for a few minutes before um, before the seizure. Um, it's one of the ways that memory works. It has to be stored within the brain, and that process can't finish if um, a seizure starts. And the most famous amnesic of all time was um, an epileptic patient who had surgery to remove the part of his brain that caused the epilepsy very successful in terms of treatment of the epilepsy but it had this really unexpected profound side effect of giving him this really terrible amnesia where he could no longer make new memories for events and that's the, how many people like that are actually in the world is it very small numbers or is it quite high um small numbers for brain surgery induced amnesia um the patient i was referring to um hm who has subsequently been revealed to be Henry Malayson after he passed away in 2008. Um, he was uh, essentially sort of the last subject that happened to um, because the side effects were so bad. But amnesia um, is far more common. If someone gets knocked out on the rugby field, you have a very small amnesia for the events you know, leading up to being knocked unconscious. So amnesia in itself is not that rare, but these sort of really terrible forms are much, much rarer. Okay, and with that, I think we'll head straight into our first track, and then we can discuss what movie it came from. Yes. 
under science or fiction. Uh, you, this is CamFM, and if you want to send in any emails, you can do it at studio at camfm.co.uk, or you can just fill out the form on the online player and click send. Uh, that last track we um, played because it plays over the ending credits of Memento, which is um, like Dory, a movie about amnesia. So I think, well, the reason I played it was actually I just wanted to get onto Memento really quickly because <laughs> I love the movie. It's a brilliant film, brilliant film. Probably the best film, well, best cinematic depiction of amnesia, in my opinion. And it also is an example of someone who's had to cope with really serious amnesia and how they develop a system of making memories when they can't do it themselves. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's based on the amnesia we were just talking about, HM. Um, the events of the film are not based on his life, but the way in which it's told backwards in 15-minute episodes was very heavily influenced by him. So... HM couldn't make new memories. He could remember things for about 15 minutes or so. But after that, those memories would just fade away. And, yeah, it leads into a whole set of issues about what you're, what it means to be a person when you can't remember your past. In Memento, one of the things that is quite strong is he can learn to do new things, even though he can't remember learning them. Was that something that was with HM, or was that something that was just in the movie. Yeah, that is true, actually, and it was one of the most valuable things that HM taught memory scientists. Um, before HM, long-term memory, which is what the problem was with HM and with, um, with Leonard in Memento, it was originally thought long-term memory was just one huge single store where everything you ever learn in a long-term way goes in. Um, but HM had this ability to continue to learn new skills, so he could learn to mirror write, which is actually very difficult to do. But he couldn't remember that he had learned to mirror write. So every day, um, the psychologists who were testing him would give him the task. He would say that it was way too difficult, there was no way he could do it. Um, then he would do it and be really impressed with how good he was and really surprised until the next day when they'd give him the task again and he would have no memory of having done it, would claim he would never be able to do it, and so on. So those sort of memories um, are a different type of memory system. It's uh, a, Basically those memories are motor memories that depend upon different brain structures to the ones that were damaged in HM and in Leonard in Memento, so that is true. So you, you could find yourself to be a pianist without actually ever realising you learnt? Yes, you could. You could. That would be very strange. <laughs> I wish I could wake up tomorrow having discovered I was a pianist, but I think I need several years of amnesia in the middle. Um, so, yeah, and I, well, I'm going to spoil the end of Memento because uh, I think it's old enough that we can talk about it. But obviously at the end of Memento, uh, he sets himself up to murder the guy who's been using him to murder other people. And that's quite interesting because it sets your situation... He can control his own life, even though he doesn't know he's doing it. Yes, I think the key thing about Leonard is that he can lie to himself because he doesn't remember. He he can set himself clues, effectively, um, to lead himself off in a misleading direction. Actually, I mean, our memories are perhaps not as reliable as we all think they are, so there is possibly an element that we are unreliable narrators ourselves. It just goes to the extreme with Leonard in Memento. The interesting thing about false memories and bad memories is, uh, I can't remember who did the study, but there's a study where I think it was Challenger disaster. They asked everyone when it happened to write down where they were, what they were doing, and they went back again so many years later and asked people to say where they were, what they were doing. And they would actually have people getting flaming rows with them about where they had been because they said the piece of paper that had their signature on was wrong. 
Yes, those are examples of flashbulb memories. So really highly emotionally charged memories like seeing the Challenger disaster. Um, feel like they imprint very strongly on our minds um, but confidence doesn't necessarily correlate with accuracy when it comes to memory studies and there have actually been um, it's a very nice study uh, a few years ago looking at three different accounts that George Bush gave um, when he heard about 9-11 um, and the attacks on the Twin Towers and he had three different accounts all within four months of of the attack and it's not that people are deliberately lying or misleading, it's just that, for instance, visual memories, like seeing the pictures on the television, um, seem to be more salient. They seem to sort of grab your attention much more and become incorporated into your original memory um, where you actually did hear about the disaster, but perhaps didn't have that visual information. So we reconstruct our past more than perhaps we, we realise. And there's of course a dark side to this, that when you get situations with recovered memories is they might actually be induced memories from the person trying to recover them. So there are cases of law, which I think now they start to accept that memory isn't as good as it was, but in the past, people get recovered memories of abuse as children and their parents would be locked up for it, where in fact that was the only evidence for it and the memories weren't genuine. It's, it's amazing how prolific these false memories can be. There's a psychologist called Elizabeth Loftus who's done a lot of work on this and she um, was implanting false memories in studies in the lab. She managed to convince some subjects that they had seen Bugs Bunny at Disneyland which of course is impossible because Bugs Bunny is a Warner Brothers character and you know would not be allowed in but people could give these really rich accounts of you know the full day who was there exactly what happened when they met Bugs Bunny so it's amazing how how much um, your memory can be influenced by the way in which you're questioned and information that you're told afterwards. And I think that's something that's actually very important that people should know more and learn more because if you're aware of how fallible your memory is, it actually makes you live your life very differently and certainly can stop you getting so, I think, stuck on problems when you think that that doesn't make any sense you can realize that you're probably the one at fault rather than worrying about the exactness of your memory going with reality in front of you exactly um i must say that the more i study memory the m less i trust my own so that's i suppose the downside of memory research do you go around the notepad now <laughs> i haven't quite reached that stage yet but um yeah give me time give me time okay well with that i'll switch on to our next track uh, as i said do remember you can send in your uh, questions to Amy via the uh, form and uh, yeah this is a song well a soundtrack from a movie we all quite like here I think we've had at least one other track from this movie so um, I hope you enjoy it <coughs>
Trek, a movie which we've talked about on here quite a bit, actually. It seems to be the current favourite movie for talking about science and fiction. It's a great film. <laughs> it is it's a brilliant film. It's got all the right things. Um, and it's it, it's got a great soundtrack. I mean, you're quite a fan of Clint. Yes, yes. Um, as we'll see later on in the show as well, I've got another Clint Mansell track. So um, do you want to just summarise the plot of Moon for us? Um, well, I hope I'm not giving anything away because it is fairly recent. Um, the reason I'm really interested in it is, um, and I really apologise for giving away any plot here, um, the fact that the man who thinks he is Sam Bell is not really Sam Bell. Um, but every single clone has been given this implanted set of memories that makes them think they are Sam Bell, um, up to the three-year stint that he does on the lunar base. And memory implantation would be sort of the real acid test of whether our understanding of memory is correct. Um, one of the um, pioneers of the field, um, Professor Tim Bliss, summarised this as the Marilyn Monroe criterion. That if we really, really understand memory, somebody should be able to implant the memory in his mind that he had dinner with Marilyn Monroe, even though that's impossible. Could we, could we do that at the moment through just a suggestion? I don't think we're quite there with suggestion yet, although maybe with some people, the, the Bugs Bunny Disneyland people, yeah. maybe. Um, but particularly sort of in a very mechanistic way, sort of thinking down to the level of individual cells or individual molecules within cells, if we really understand how that works, we should be able to implant memories in the brain. Because you're, you're, are you a neurobiologist as well? Yes. Yeah, so you're, you're far more interested in how it actually is structured in the brain rather than the input-output. Well, you do both. Yeah, I, I sit in a lab that um, sits between the two fields. So I'm interested in very, very small scale molecules and what happens within brain cells when memories are made. But I'm also interested in the processes um, and the brain structures on a much higher level um, that are involved in certain types of memories. I think you need to have that link between the psychology and the neuroscience to really get a handle on what's going on. So as someone who also sits between two fields, they're great people to have. Yeah. I'm totally biased. Um, <laughs> so we've got a question here, and it just kind of linked into um, Sam Bell's situation, though we're not talking about imprinting memories on clones. We're talking about when we're very young children and we're growing up and obviously developing our first memories, why do we not remember them? It's a very good question. I mean, the brain changes a lot as you develop anyway. And in fact, there are some parts of the brain um, that don't finish developing until you're in your late teens, early 20s. The prefrontal cortex is, is the area that I'm referring to. Um, and it's a bit that allows you to inhibit um, the worst parts of your behavior. Um, so the brain does develop quite a lot. It always comes back, I mean, the not being able to um, remember something always comes back to an argument that's been ongoing in neuroscience and psychology for hundreds if not longer of years um, is the memory in there and we can't retrieve it we can't find it or was the memory in there and then was lost or was it never in there in the first place and it's difficult to say for young children um, sometimes memories can seem to come back which seems to suggest obviously that they're there in the first place but a lot of um, memories from childhood are often things that have been suggested to you by your parents who have talked about it many many times over is there any like some memories when childhood do you just reinforce them enough if you go through your life so if you're asked at three about a memory of two then you get asked about it again at four will that carry a memory forward allow it sort of transition from being a childhood memory to an adult memory um 
possibly. I don't think anybody's done that experiment. Well, uh, <laughs> take a while, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would take a while, but, you know, Piaget worked out his theories of psychological development on his children, so, you know. <laughs> Is that allowed anymore? <laughs> I, I think so long as it's not anything harmful, I think you can do it. <laughs> oh, I've got, I've got a daughter. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the other thing I was going to say is also photographs have massively changed the way we store memory, because obviously we now look at a photograph and that will reinforce a memory. And I certainly have memories which are in the third person, which can't possibly be in the third person, because my eyes aren't on the back of my head yeah i mean a lot of people say that if you take a lot of photographs of your holiday then your memories of your holiday are from the photographs um again it's that visual representation being really really prominent and really affecting the way that we remember things just sort of being really really salient did you see that recent study that said that uh, basically the internet isn't causing us to be thicker it's just changing the way people are remembering things so now people remember where to find it on the internet rather than actually remembering the information in it yeah i think that's something um i think students have been doing that for a while i teach a lot of medical students and they quite often say you know i'll ask them a question and they'll say i can't remember what the answer is but i know exactly where on the page the answer is written so i think the, the google study is um is just sort of an extension of that and actually it's it's quite adaptive behavior assuming that you can access the internet um, as the experimenters, you know, if they're telling you the truth, um, then actually it's quite an adaptive way to behave because a lot of things we don't need to remember and a lot of things our brains do fill in. So, um, for instance, if you have a memory you know, in your parents' house, you don't need to remember exactly what your parents' house looks like. You can just fill it in from other memories where you have a representation of your parents' house. So there's no sense in wasting space on irrelevant information the google study may just be an extension of that and it does make sense to me because as we get more and more developed in different fields there's going to be more and more stuff you would have to learn if we want everything to be on total recall and that just isn't possible because i say there's far too much information out there also it's changing so quickly you need to be able to go find out what the latest information is so you're just augmenting yourself with technology yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just waiting for the USB port to plug in the information. <laughs> that sounds a little bit more like the Matrix, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll go horribly wrong as well. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we've got another track for you now. I hope you enjoy that. Again, if you have any more questions, thank you for that one. It was from Susan in Cambridge. Uh, we'll try and answer the show. Thank you for listening, and here's our next track. <laughs> Thank you. 
that was Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime, uh, originally by the Corgis, but that was the Beck version because I believe Amy prefers it. <laughs> I think it's a good version. Also, that's presumably the version actually in the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes, that's yes, right. So that also ties in far better. A movie which I've never seen and we were just discussing about, and apparently I should see. It's, it's a really interesting film. Um, again, I guess it's kind of old enough that the plot is fair you know, it's okay to give away the plot um essentially it's set in a reality where um there's a company called lacuna Inc. that can erase memories on demand um jim carrey plays a man who finds out that his ex-girlfriend has had her memory of him erased and to get revenge he decides he'll have his memory of her erased um but as the film progresses, he loses the more recent memories first. Um, and those are obviously the bad ones just before the breakup. And then as he remembers the good times when they first got together, he realises that maybe he didn't want to lose those memories after all. And can he do nothing about that? He can't at the point where the memory erasure is taking place, but there's a really nice, interesting twist at the end of the film. Um, one of the employees finds out that she's had her memory erased as well, and she's so angry about this, she sends out all of the information about the memory erasure to every patient who's had the procedure performed. So... Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet both find out simultaneously that they were previously an item and decide to give it another go. And the end credits just keep looping round. So actually there's that kind of implication that you're not sure how many times this cycle has repeated. Because suddenly memories become so optional. Yeah. That's really weird. And that presumably would be a big danger of anyone being able to change their memories. Is Like a memento, it, everyone can lie to themselves. Yes, that's true. Um, but there are some memories where you might actually really want to lose them. I mean, in the film, it's it's applied quite um, liberally, I guess, and people are raising memories of bad breakups and, uh, you know, their dog that's died, for instance. But in the case of some psychiatric illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder... Um, those memories actually become incredibly maladaptive and very difficult for a patient to live with. And actually there, the, um, the erasure of that memory may be better for the patient, if it were possible, than um, actually allowing them to continue. So we're talking like something like someone who's been in a violent war or someone who suffered a rape or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Um, memories with this really strong emotional component. Um, Post-traumatic stress is associated with obviously traumatic events, but events where the patient um, experienced an event where they had a threat of you know, really bad physical harm um, or the threat of death, or they've witnessed terrible things um, and it's often accompanied with a real um, lack of control of the situation which is why it's quite common in warfare situations or in rape situations um, most people who go for a traumatic event will have acute stress disorder so for a few weeks afterwards they'll have flashbacks of the traumatic event and it will you know they'll avoid things that remind them of the traumatic event but many people then move on from that if that sort of state, that sort of really hyper-anxious flashbacks um, and nightmares continue, that's when it progresses into post-traumatic stress disorder and becomes a much longer-term problem. The thing which worries me about this, and obviously you've not got far enough to know what the effects would be, if you go and remove a violent crime against you of you know, something obviously nice enough that you'd want to, you would still, other people in society would know it had happened to you, and how 
people would deal with that would obviously be something we just can't predict at the moment. That's that's very true. Um, there has been a little bit of research in this area, and actually one of the reasons that I like Eternal Sunshine so much is that um, the lab I'm in is working on these sort of memory erasure treatments, particularly to be applied to psychiatric disorders. Certainly for PTSD, there's been a little bit of research um, in clinical trials, some pilot clinical data. What seems to happen in, um, in those studies is the emotional component of the memory can be erased, but actually the memory for what happened remains. So, for instance, um, there's a case of a woman who experienced a very, very bad car crash and could no longer get into a car because it was just... she just couldn't do it after having um this experimental treatment she was still she could still remember the car accident but she no longer had that fear associated with getting into the car and so she was able to get back into the car again and carry on with her life as normal so although memory erasure does sound very dramatic and sort of quite ethically dubious I think especially if you take the entire memory away if you're just taking that emotional component away and leaving the memory for the events intact and we know those two memories are stored in two different brain areas so they can be target targeted independently then actually you end up with a situation where you can help treat psychiatric illnesses without crossing into you know too dark ethical I, mean, I, I wasn't even thinking about ethics I was just thinking about if I opted to have a memory erased I would probably spend quite a while trying to wanting to know what I'd erased. It might sound mm -hmm. ludicrous, but generally how things work in my life is I d don't like not knowing things. Yeah, and actually that's something that they try to address in Eternal Sunshine, actually. So they send cards round to everyone um, who knows the patient um, to say, you know, Clementine has had her memory erased of Joel, please do not mention him again. And in fact, that's how Joel finds out that she's had her memory erased um, because one of his friends cracks and shows him the card. Oh, that's so that's how they dealt to was trying to get society to erase the memory, but that's not exactly a trivial thing to do. No, no. Especially when you don't get paid for it. <laughs> so we've got another uh, question here. How do short-term memories turn to long-term memories? So I assume this is to do with the fact that um, HM couldn't develop long-term memories, so that was the process that was disrupted, and what was it? Yeah, that's actually a very, uh, a very good question. Quite a controversial one, actually. Ten years ago, I would have given you one answer. Now I will give you this answer. Um, originally, the traditional views of memory were very much that short-term memories converted into long-term memories through rehearsal. So if you want to remember a phone number, for instance, you repeat it back to yourself over and over, and it moves into long-term memory. Um, in the last ten years or so, there has been an alternative theory of memory that has become more prominent. And this view of memory suggests that long-term and short-term isn't the way to think about memories. The way to think about them is in terms of whether they are in an active state or an inactive state. So there's actually some surface similarity. The active state of a memory is very short-lived and it's very susceptible to interference or um, having new information incorporated, a lot like short-term memory. The inactive state is very much like long-term memory. It's far more stable and far more persistent. But the key difference between the old view of memory and the new view of memory is that in the old view, it was a one-way street. You could move from short-term memory to long-term memory. But this new theory of memory, which is known as memory reconsolidation, 
action. Um, suggests that you can actually move memories back from the inactive state to the active state if you get someone to recall them in the right way. And in fact, that's the process that's targeted in those clinical studies I was just talking about. The patients are asked to recall their traumatic memory. They read, you know, they, they produce a script that's tape recorded. They're then brought back into the lab the next day, presented with their trauma script again, and given a drug treatment that takes away the emotional component of that memory and obviously if they're given placebo it doesn't work but interestingly if they don't hear their trauma script again if you get them to just watch a movie or something and give them the, tr the drug treatment it doesn't work either you need to have both the behavioral treatment and the drug treatment at the same time because you need to convert the memory to the active state and then um, and then disrupt it so Ten years ago, I would have said rehearsal. Now it's a little bit more controversial exactly how you get from short-term memory to long-term memory. So if you're someone like me who's absolutely rubbish at remembering phone numbers, is that because I don't rehearse it or because I don't, I'm just rubbish? It could be. I mean, it could be that you're not rehearsing it, but I suspect that your mobile phone probably remembers all the numbers for you. So I can still remember, you know, phone numbers from my uh, teenage years before mobiles became... You know, prominent and you, know, you had to ring your friends you know when they hadn't turned up to the, to the shops on time um but other than like one or two numbers now my phone remembers it for me so there's no chance for rehearsal um so yeah it's, it's again it sort of gets to the is this information important and relevant for you to know or are you just going to be able to access it and you just need to know how to access it not like that google study yeah, well, the problem, of course, is when my phone runs out of battery and I'm stuck at a payphone. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to move on to our next track. Uh, and, um, yeah, as always, keep sending in those questions. We've had some great ones so far, so um, thank you. <laughs>
that was Summer Overture by once again Clint Mansell. And that's from the movie of Requiem for a Dream. Yep, uh, the probably well one of the better cinematic depictions of drug addiction. Now this of course is really important because we have spoken about uh, in with the endless sunshine of a spotless mind about erasing memories to get over post-traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder yeah that's yes right. get tongue twisted at this time of night um but this is what you're also doing your work is quite focused on is doing the same thing but applying it to um drug addiction yes that's right so um the idea that you could erase memories to treat post-traumatic stress um has been around for sort of the last 10 years or so and is done by a couple of labs not many but a few labs across the world um what really marks us out is that we do try and apply this to drug addiction as well because the same psychological process that happens in post-traumatic stress um, can happen in drug addiction but this time rather than you know environmental cues particular sounds and places and so on being associated with intense fear um, these people and places and paraphernalia become associated with a drug high and what happens are, well a really um, important factor in inducing relapse in drug addicts is the presence of these environmental stimuli these conditioned cues um, in the environment and that then hijacks their behavior um, in very sort of compulsive ways so that they automatically take drugs without having any real control over their behavior and the same thing of course is true of alcoholism yeah exactly so alcoholism is an example of drug addiction even though um, because alcohol is so much more widely used and because it's legal it's sometimes not considered in the same bracket um, but actually alcohol can be as damaging as illegal drugs of abuse well this is what professor david nutt was sacked for was he claimed that it was the most dangerous drug i think at the time yeah and he's got a real point um, the the difference um the real difference between something like ecstasy or heroin is that it tends to kill people when they're young and you know, they're bright and have a future ahead of them and it's very sudden. Alcoholism tends to kill people over a number of decades and it tends to be you know, with liver disease and it's much more drawn out and it's sort of more hidden from society. It's not a sudden shock when it comes. Um, but if you look at the numbers, alcohol is you know, as dangerous or yeah, possibly more dangerous than many illegal drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that David Nutt comes under fire from other people is he does, f <laughs> he doesn't look at it from a sociological point of view, and I think that's something which makes it far more complicated because all the other drugs aren't legal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a question here which doesn't totally relate to this, but it's interesting for me. Has there been any research into whether animals have memory blanks? Banks. Sorry. Um, yes, there has. So. Um, Animals do have memory, um, but they have different types of memory from people, we think. Um, so that event memory that we were talking about earlier with HM has not been convincingly shown in animals. We don't know that an animal can remember from day to day, you know, oh, I remember Thursday, I did this. Um, although Professor Nikki Clayton has done some quite nice work with scrub jays suggesting that they do have this sort of event-like memory. Um, but that hasn't been shown in something like a rat, for instance. But they do have memories for, um, like this conditioning process I was just talking about, Pavlov's dogs, the classic example. Well, I was going to say, my guinea pigs, if they ever hear a rustling... Well, it used to be a rustling paper bag. What's interesting, it changed. If they heard a rustling bag, they knew they were about to get fed, we'd run to the bars and squeak. Mm -hmm. Now they're outside, because we 
when they were younger, they were inside. Uh, if you open the back door of the house, they suddenly run up to bars of occasion and start squeaking. Yeah, and it's because they're, um, they're going through this process of Pavlovian conditioning where something that's originally neutral, like the sound of the paper bag rustling, um, becomes paired with something that's really emotionally and motivationally significant, like yummy guinea pig food. Um, and because it's predictive... Um, they then start showing the response, the conditioned response to that. Now, if something else turns up that's equally as predictive, like the back door opening, they'll then condition to that. And actually, you see this happening in drug addicts that you know you go from let's say for a cocaine addict white powder being the conditioned stimulus with the drug high um to the dealer who provides the powder becoming a conditioned stimulus going back even further to you get to the point where you know money is the conditioned stimulus and so actually it sort of works backwards and nearly everything becomes a drug stimulus um which then, of course, makes it very difficult when you're an addict trying not to relapse, when you have all these reminder cues around you trying to take control of your behaviour. What you've actually just reminded me of is um, a problem faced by chemo chemotherapy patients is that they actually may not find the chemotherapy too bad to start it with, but because it's a poison, they start getting links to nurses or the book they read and things like that. I, I mean, it gets so bad, but I believe that nurses who have to deal with chemotherapy often find that patients will walk up to them in the street and throw up over them mm -hmm. just because it, it gives the stimulus. That's, yeah, that's an observation I've heard before, actually. People sort of coming up to the Addenbrooke's Roundabout, for instance, will start to feel ill. Um, that's actually one of the, the uh, applications we've thought of for this sort of treatment. And we've been in discussion with some of the clinicians here about whether we might do an experimental medicine study um, on those patients if they were willing to sign up for it. So that might be something for the future. I mean, that would definitely be great because chemotherapy is fairly horrific in the first place. Anyway, I've got one more track for you. Um, if you have any more questions in, this is your last chance to email them in or send them in through the online form. Um, so we'll catch up with you after this track. <laughs> Thank you. 
for Science Fiction, and that was Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones, as featured in Full Metal Jacket. Yes, um, a, yeah, a very good Vietnam film, which I thought had a very nice link to post-traumatic stress disorder. So yeah, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so we'll just finish up with, we've got one question on the email, and um, yeah, that will probably be it for the night. So we've got this question here, is pregnancy brain a true thing? Uh, where you have difficulty remembering things whilst you're expecting a baby? Um, so this isn't my research area, but I can see how this would link into um, context-induced retrieval is the term we would use for it. When you're pregnant, your hormones are very, very different um, from when you're not pregnant. And there have been a lot of studies showing that if you're in one state when you learn something and then a different state when you try to remember it, it's very, very difficult for that information to transfer across. So studies with you know, scuba divers learning underwater and then being tested on land and so on. So I suspect it's probably something like that. The test of that would be if you're expecting another child, is it easier to remember what happened in pregnancy the first time? Oh, so if the pregnancy memories suddenly become more powerful in later pregnancies? Yeah, because you've got the same hormones going all around your system again. That would be a good test of that. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy the show. I certainly have. And um, this is sadly the last one of this series, but I'm sure we'll be back with something soon. Okay, goodbye. <laughs>